0: We're about to look at a scripture text, though, that doesn't talk about the coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago in a stable in Bethlehem. We're going to look at a scripture text instead that talks about the future coming of Jesus on a day that none of us knows. And if you've been around the last few weeks, you know why that is. It's because traditionally, the global church has celebrated the season of Advent Yes, as a reminder of the coming of Jesus the first time, but even more so as a focus on preparation for his return when he comes again. And so the connection goes something like this. When he came the first time as a baby in Bethlehem, uh, some were ready and others weren't. And when he comes the second time, some will be ready and others won't be. And so we want to be among those who are ready. To that end, let's pray. Lord, you're big, and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Who likes long road trips in the car? I don't mind a long road trip. I like to be the one driving, usually, if I need to go on a long road trip. I'll tell you, though, what can't happen if I'm driving on a long road trip. Here's what can't happen. I can't have a car full of sleeping people, right? I mean, Sarah's good about this, but other people have been on road trips in the past. It happens like you get on the road, everybody's all excited, and then you look around and everybody in the car is passed out. Um, I can't have that particularly because there's something about being in the car in a comfortable seat behind the wheel that just puts me to sleep. And so I'm susceptible to that. And so I really need at least one person in the car to say, hey, I'm going to stay awake with you and help me to stay awake as well. I think there's a corollary to that in the life of faith. Maybe something like this. Um, We're on a journey with Jesus. And at times, this journey can feel really long. As such, the easiest thing in the world is for us to drift to sleep. Spiritually speaking, right to lose focus on our mission, to lack awareness of what's going on all around us, to fail to see clearly what we need to see clearly. Anybody experience that when you don't have somebody alongside you keeping you awake that you start to drift and become groggy in your faith, so to speak? As such, I think we all could use someone or some people to come alongside us in our life to help us stay awake. And our scripture text today. Paul is going to say to his friends in Thessalonica, hey, I'll play that role for you. I'll help keep you awake. And by the end of our scripture passage, he's going to be telling them, encouraging them, hey, you keep playing that role for one another as well. Would you turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? You'll want to be there with us as we explore this text together over the next several minutes. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you read through 1 Thessalonians, you'll see that, it really seems like Paul is responding to some questions that he's received from this church through Timothy. Um, And so he's just responded right before our text to the question about what's going to happen to dead Christians when Jesus returns? And now in our text, he's going to take on another question, which is what's going to happen if we're still alive when Jesus returns? And by the way, hey, Paul, when is that going to happen again? When is Jesus coming back? So the text is organized into three sections. We might label them like this unbelievers' experience at Christ's return, believers experience at Christ's return, and making ready for Christ's return. We'll walk through each of those three uh, as we go. First, unbelievers' experience at Christ's return. Follow along with me as I read verses one through three of First Thessalonians chapter five. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers. Anybody anybody heard of it? I'm the only one? Okay. Um, When I heard that they're making a movie in which the plot centered around the idea that people would be coming back to a dinosaur themed theme park 20 years after the first one failed so epically, my first thought was, I'm going to love that movie. I'm going to see it. Second thought was, in real life, who would feel secure enough to go back to a dinosaur theme park after everybody got eaten at the first one, right? Just 20 years ago. Um, what if, though, what if the sense of security that turned out to be a false sense of security at Jurassic World, what if the sense of security that so many people around us, maybe some of us included, feel is no less false? Here's what I mean. Um, I'm thinking about the person on the North Shore who says, hey, I'm living a good life. I'm a pretty moral person. I've make decisions that are safe decisions, I'm sure that in the end, God will sort things out so that I'm on the right side of things. According to what we just read, that person may be living in a delusion, a fantasy. You see it in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them. When will that happen? Well, if we rewind to verse 2, it tells us that's going to happen on the day of the Lord. And if you search through the Bible on everything it says about the day of the Lord... There's uh, some pretty terrifying descriptions there of things that sound almost like that fateful day at Jurassic World. Uh, Scenes of terror, scenes of wrath. It's talked about as an awesome day, but a dreadful day. It's a day in which God's own will be vindicated and God's enemies will be judged. And the New Testament tells us that that will take place on the day that Christ returns. Verse 2 tells us something else about that day, though. It tells us that it'll come like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. That language comes from Jesus himself. He used that language. And then it's picked up by multiple New Testament writers who talk about the day of Christ's return as coming like a thief in the night. And it's an apt analogy. It's fitting for two reasons. One, a thief in the night is unexpected. Thief in the night is unexpected. That's why Paul says in verse 1, I don't need to write to you about the timing of it. You already know it's going to come at an unexpected time. But A package delivery in the middle of the night is unexpected as well, but Paul doesn't say that Jesus will return like an Amazon delivery driver in the night. He says like a thief in the night, and that reflects the second aspect of it, that it's unwelcome. It's not only unexpected, it's unwelcome. That makes us ask, why would the return of Jesus possibly be unwelcome? That's exactly what Paul elaborates on In verse 3, he's picturing these people who are kicking back, relaxing, saying to one another, ah, we've achieved peace and security, and then destruction comes. A little background on that phrase, peace and security. Paul's not just using an arbitrary phrase here. It was a favorite slogan in the Roman Empire in his day. They felt like they had achieved peace and security through their economic Uh, Machine through their military might, through their governmental organization. And so they put it on banners. They put it on coins. Peace and security. And Paul says people will be saying peace, security, and then destruction will come. Here on the North Shore, we don't fly banners that say peace and security. Um, But I wonder if it's even a fitting slogan for where we live. And here's what I mean by that. The zip codes that we live in are some of the most desirable in the whole country, maybe even the whole world, uh, as reflected in housing costs, right? Um, the reason that it's so desirable for so many people to live here is because the belief is if you can find a way to reside on the North Shore, you'll experience peace, right? Apart from the chaos of the city, you'll experience security in safe neighborhoods in 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 schools where you know your kids are going to be getting a good education right that's the dream that the north shore holds out and says come get this dream it's really a good summary of it actually when you think about it that way peace and security but if we look at what paul's saying here and extrapolate to our own day we might say this even in that moment when some people on the north shore are saying ah we've achieved peace and security." We've sent our kids off to good colleges. We've set them up with secure futures. Even in that moment, destruction will come on them. He says they'll come like labor pains, and that's an apt analogy for what he's talking about, again, for two reasons. One, because the pregnant woman doesn't know the exact moment when labor pains are going to begin. The exact timing of the onset is a surprise, just like the exact timing of Jesus' return will be a surprise for us. But a second reason why that analogy is fitting is because where labor pains are headed is inevitable, right? Like once the labor pains begin, there's only one end destination to where they're going, right? You're going to end up on the delivery table or I guess uh, in the bathtub or on your kitchen floor if you're one of those people, if that's your thing. But the delivery, that pain is coming, right? Um, It's only a matter of time. And it's Jesus, he's saying, Paul's saying the same thing about the destruction that's to come. There's no escaping it once those labor pains begin. So, hey, as we wrap up this first point, I want you to know we're not a church that relishes talking about future destruction, right? But we are Jesus people. And our Lord Jesus did talk about future destruction sometimes. And so we believe that love actually requires of us that we from time to time speak of the destruction that's coming but here's the great news if you don't yet know Jesus what's said here in verse 3 does not have to be true for you that sudden destruction doesn't have to come upon you even today before you leave here you could put your faith in Christ and be absolutely certain before you even leave these premises that you'll escape the, destruct- the destruction that we just saw in verse 3 We'll talk more about that, but let's take a look at the next couple verses to see a picture of how the same day of the Lord will be experienced very differently by people who do know Christ. We'll look at verses four and five. This will be believers' experience at Christ's return. Follow along with me. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, There are good surprises and bad surprises for most of us, right? We would say a thief in the night is a bad surprise. Most of us would say a surprise birthday party is a good surprise. Now, I know some people are so surprise averse that they might even rather have their house robbed than have a surprise birthday party. But for most of us, there's a category for good surprises and a category for bad surprises. The thing is that we can't totally avoid... The return of Christ being a surprise. Unless, I guess, we would sit at our window 24-7 looking out, having people bring their meals to us, and we say, is it now? Is it now? Is it now? The reality is we can't avoid it because Jesus told us that nobody knows the day or the hour. It will come as a surprise to us in one sense, but it won't be the same sort of surprise for everyone. Um, Namely, for those who belong to Christ, we just saw it won't be the thief sort of surprised. You see that in verse 4? You are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, remember what we said about the thief in the night. It's unexpected and unwelcome. Um, We can extrapolate that here and see that it's unexpected, yes, in the timing. It's unexpected in the timing of it, but for those of us who belong to Christ, the event itself is expected. And even more importantly, it's not unwelcome For us who belong to Christ, we actually welcome it and we'll rejoice on that day when our Lord Jesus returns. Um, But what what specifically differentiates the person who receives Christ's return as welcome and the person who receives Christ's return as unwelcome? Paul differentiates it here, doesn't he? In verses 4 and 5, using two sets of images, uh, darkness versus light and day versus night, right? I think he does that because he's just been reflecting on the day of the Lord, which will come like a thief in the night, and he sees something there and wants to unravel it a little bit for us. And so here's uh, two reasons why darkness and light is the analogy that he uses here. First, in Scripture, light reveals, darkness hides. That's one difference between light and darkness. So before we came to know Christ, many important things like his coming return, were hidden from us, from all of us when we were walking in the darkness. We didn't know. We couldn't see them. We didn't know to expect them. But then when we stepped into the light, we had the experience that many of the most important questions that any human being can ask suddenly were illuminated for us, or maybe not suddenly, progressively over time, but questions like, who is God? Who am I? Why am I here? Why do I have the longings that I have? Those sorts of questions that we were previously in the dark about we've now experienced illumination on. So that's one reason why darkness and light is the contrast. Another is that light is a setting for purity and darkness is a setting for impurity. Um, Before we came to know Christ, we did the sort of actions that are done in the darkness. We would think, we would say, we would do impure things in darkness and now we not perfectly but characteristically think and say and do pure things the sort of pure things that we're happy to do in the light of day. I've already made one invitation this morning to friends who may be here who don't yet know Jesus, um, but verses 4 and 5 allow me to circle back to that just from a different angle. In the scripture text this morning, you've been invited to take a peek into the light. The question is, is what you're seeing there in the light making your heart feel pulled toward it this very morning you could step into that light you could step fully into that light in fact that light could become your home where you live with all of its revealing of things that were previously hidden in your life with all of its purifying of things that were previously impure in your life that can be your experience and if you do choose to do so and give your life to jesus even this morning then his return won't surprise you like a thief It'll instead be a cause for rejoicing. Paul seems pretty certain in verse 5 that for his readers, the return of Christ will be cause for rejoicing. Why is he so confident? That's what we're going to see in the last section, that there are certain characteristics he's identified in them that he expects to continue to grow in them. And so in this last section, he's going to circle back to those characteristics as he looks at making ready Christ's returns. So we'll finish up there, verses 6 through 11, if you would follow along with me. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. The person who tries to start getting ready for a race on the day of the race will not be ready for the race, right? The person who tries to start getting ready for a test on the day of the test will not be ready for the test. A person who tries to start saving up for a new roof on the day the new roof goes out will not have enough money for the new roof there are certain events in life that we have to prepare for in advance if the preparation is going to mean anything right consistently the bible talks about the return of christ as one of those sorts of events and paul is confident in his readers because he sees evidence in their lives that they are in fact preparing in advance And so in this section, he encourages them. I see you. I see you living in this preparation. And he exhorts them, keep up with it. Four ways I see Paul talking about preparations here. First, he tells them, keep awake. Verse six, keep awake. I used to be a high school history teacher. When I became a high school teacher, um, one of the biggest shocks for me, my first week teaching was the realization That back when I had been a student, my teacher knew that I was sleeping in class, I didn't realize it until I got on the other side of it, and I was a teacher. I was like, oh my gosh, my teachers all definitely knew that I was sleeping, and I thought, no, they probably didn't notice. They probably not. They definitely did, and um, so I became the teacher at 22 years old. I was like, well, I'm going to be a teacher who when somebody's sleeping in class somebody's drifting off I'm gonna take a textbook and drop it on their desk in front of them or walk by them and step on their toes because we got to stay awake but <clears throat> when we're falling asleep we're not locked in right we're not focused on what we need to be focused on our drowsiness makes it so that we're not ready to respond to what needs to be responded to we can't help those who need help around us so Paul's like hey church at Thessalonica." Don't drift off, stay awake. Second, be sober. Same era, high school teacher, Sarah and I were sharing a car at the time, so every once in a while there was a situation when I had to get a ride home uh, from school, from a fellow teacher or a fellow coach. So i never forget one day, uh, one of my colleagues says, hey, I'll take you home, and uh, on the way out of the parking lot he stops at the gas station next door, this is not a joke, he goes in, gets a Miller light, puts it in a paper bag, cracks it open, takes a big swig, puts it in the console, says, let's head on home, right? I can't remember ever being in more of a panic than I was on that drive. Um, what was I scared of? Well, there are legal fears, like I don't really understand as a 22-year-old uh, what my, uh, what, what I'm complicit in if I'm in a car with somebody with an open container, but bigger than that, the law is what it is, because when people are under the influence, they don't have their wits about them, right? They're not sharp when they need to be sharp, and so that was my greater fear, is I'm about to get this ride home from somebody who's, I don't know, this is is even his first drink of the day, who knows? And Paul's saying something like this, as we prepare for the return of Christ, yes, be awake, but also be sober, spiritually speaking. In other words, be at peak alertness so you're able to be at maximum function in those key moments in life that we don't know when they're coming, but those critical moments, those decisive moments in our life, most importantly, the moment of Christ's return. Keep awake, be sober. Third, keep your armor on. That's verse eight. Keep your armor on. Something I didn't always appreciate about clothing, and that's that it can reflect preparedness. It can reflect preparedness. Again, as a teacher, One year I was having a hard time early in the year with uh, classroom management. Somebody told me, hey, put a tie on. So I started wearing a tie. It was like a different class the next day and going forward. I was shocked because clothing can reflect preparedness. Um, Revelation 16 supports this not in terms of the types of clothes we wear, but in terms of being clothed. Jesus, the risen Jesus says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remain clothed. The the idea being that when something unexpected comes in the night, we'll be more ready if we have kept our clothes on. What does that mean for us? Well, I think it's useful to take a look at verse 8 and see what's the particular type of clothing that we're supposed to have on here. Uh, The readiness involves having on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. That triad that Paul talks about so often, faith, hope, and love, doesn't he? He's saying that the task is to stay clothed with those things. You notice he doesn't say put on those things in this case. He says you already have put them on, so the task is to keep them on. Those virtues, faith, hope, and love, let them continue to characterize you until the day Of Christ's return. Finally, encourage one another. That's the final way he talks about these preparations. Encourage one another. Do you see it in verse 11? Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. If you've experienced the difference between working out by yourself versus working out with a coach, an instructor, even a friend who's going to push you, you know what Paul's talking about here that when things get tough, when a task is difficult, It's really helpful to have others alongside us, pushing us in it. And that's why Paul concludes this passage in a way that seems kind of like out of nowhere when you're first looking at it. But then this is why. Because we're going to need each other if we're going to make it. If we're going to be a people who stay awake. If we're going to be people who remain sober and keep our armor on. We're going to need each other's encouragement in order to do that. Uh, We need that person in the passenger seat keeping us awake. We need that person by our side encouraging us to remain sober. We need that person who notices when we're starting to slack off and wanting to take our armor off. Who tells us, no, 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 keep your armor on. Be ready. Paul looks at this church in Thessalonica and he sees you guys are doing this. You're awake, you're sober, you have your armor on, you're encouraging one another. And that's why he uses the language he does in verse 11, just as you are doing. Keep doing it just as you're doing it. And so he's confident that they belong to the day. He's confident that they're going to obtain salvation because he sees that evidence in their life. Now there's something we want to make totally clear here, and that's this. <clears throat> Paul is not saying that this church has obtained salvation because of their good deeds, because they're this sort of people, right? That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, the fact that they're this sort of people is evidence that they have obtained salvation. and The salvation they've obtained was not from their initiative, not from their good works, but rather from God's initiative. Do you notice that in verse 9? He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The initiative is God's. He's the one who has destined them for this. And not only has he destined them for it, he has purchased it. You see that? Jesus Christ who died for us. What does it mean for us? Died for us? It means he died in our place. He purchased this salvation at greatest cost to himself when he shed his blood in your place and in mine and in the place of this church at Thessalonica when he hung on that cross where we should have been after living a perfect life that we never could have lived so that he could take the wrath that you and I deserved so that we could live with him. Which is the good news of verse 10. We might live with him. So we can be confident that whether we're alive when he returns or whether we're dead when he returns, that we will get to live with him forever. That's the message here in verse 10, if we truly belong to him. And Paul's confident that these people belong to him because he sees evidence in their life. So let me ask you this. What does the evidence in your life show? All right. We see what the evidence shows in the life of this church that makes Paul confident for them. What does the evidence in your life show? Is it, is it a wakeful, armored up sobriety in the faith that leads you to be confident that you will be ready when Christ returns? Or is it more of a drowsy, distracted sleepiness in the life of faith that might indicate or suggest that you don't yet belong to the day? Our big idea today is this. As we make ready for Christ's return, let's help each other be characterized by sober watchfulness. As we make ready for Christ's return, let's help each other. That's verse 11. Let's encourage each other in it. Let's help each other be characterized by sober watchfulness. I started out this message talking about how I have a propensity to fall asleep at the wheel. I didn't tell you that I actually had. uh, I have told you before, I, I had a scare this fall where I actually did fall asleep at the wheel. And ever since then, I've been terrified, scared to death, that that will happen again. I'm diligent on guard about it, but there's something even more scary than the possibility of falling asleep at the wheel and injuring myself and others. And that's the possibility, the idea that we, church family, wouldn't be ready when Jesus returns. Our tendency to sleep spiritually speaking is a strong strong tendency. We need each other if we 're going to stay awake and sober until that day. Let me leave us with one way that we can do that one way that we can help each other be characterized by sober sober watchfulness and it 's something we can do this week. Right? You heard about it earlier during announcements on wednesday we 're going to engage together in a church wide one day fast we 're going to abstain from food if all of us who are able, uh, some of us are all going to, also going to stay, abstain from electronics, other distractors. Um, You're going to do what you can do, um, but as we abstain, especially from food, it'll be an act of war, actually, against the consumerism, the individualism that's in the air that we breathe that is trying its best to seep in and lull us to sleep, right? To get our focus off of what it's supposed to be on during this Christmas season. How is this an act of war? Well, what happens is when you fast, we're going to be hungry that day, right? And when we feel those hunger pains, what we're going to do is we're going to use that as an occasion to turn to God in prayer, to ask him that he'd help us remain wakeful, ask us to help us remain alert and fully devoted, singularly devoted to him during this Christmas season and as we prepare our hearts for his return. So we hope you'll join us in that fast. This Wednesday, ask us if you've got questions about that, and we're praying together that God will use that fast in a mighty way in the life of our church. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for coming the first time. Leaving your throne, you're worshipped by angels 24-7. You had cattle on a thousand hills. You had everything, the riches of the universe at your disposal. You left that to be born in a stable, laid in a manger, the lowest of the low, and then you weren't done climbing down the ladder from there. You climbed even lower, subjecting yourself to death, even death on a cross, a humiliating end for our sake. Thank you that you did all of that for us. And Lord, we know that some were ready for that coming, some were not, and we know that you're coming again. Since you've been raised from the dead and you now are at the right hand of your Father in heaven, we know that you plan to return and bring us home with you. Help us to be ready when you do. Help us to be a people who aren't lulled to sleep by the cares of this world and the messages that it sends us, tries to make us think that we're okay and there's peace and security. Help us to be a people instead who are alert, who are on guard, who are watchful, who are sober-minded. And most importantly, help us to come alongside each other to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.